All right, listen, guys, I get it. Many of you are unable to financially support this ministry because you're spending your cash and your lives on raising young children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Praise God for you and that endeavor. However, algorithms are a thing. Shadow banning, sadly, is a thing. And one major way that you can help to expand the reach and effectiveness of this ministry that doesn't cost you a dime is by spending just a few moments leaving us a five-star review. Also, perhaps even more effective than that, you can share our podcast with a friend. We hope you'll take the time to do so. Thank you so much. God bless. Pastors who refuse to rebuke women are pastors who hate women. Feminism is one of the chief causes of fatherlessness. If we truly want to protect children, then we must esteem fatherhood. And if we want to esteem fatherhood, then we must destroy feminism. And if we are to successfully destroy feminism, then pastors must stop hating women in their churches by treating them as though they are nothing more than sinless victims. So in this episode of Theology Applied, I'm privileged to have back on the show Eric Kahn, host of the Hard Man podcast and the King's Hall to discuss this vital topic. Tune in now. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Well, welcome back to another episode of Theology Applied. I am your host, Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. And in this episode, I am privileged to have as my special guest, Eric Kahn from a whole host of different realms. He is from Hard Man Podcast, the primary host there. He's also on the King's Hall Podcast. He is also um, one of the staff members and leading founding members of New Christendom Press, uh, which hopefully by God's grace puts out great uh, Christian theology for years to come. And are you currently an officer at your church, Eric? Yeah, that's right. So this last year I was a uh, pastoral candidate. Um, and then uh, I think it was uh, mid-December I uh, was officially installed as a pastor here cool. at the at the church. Yeah, great. And then, do you guys have, you know, because I, I know that you've all embraced Westminster view of the covenants and pedo baptism, um, but do you guys, with you and Dan and Brian, do you have the traditional Presbyterian model of a bifurcation of like teaching elders and ruling elders, or is it just pastor as a pastor? Yeah, no, pastor is a pastor. So t- typically, it'd be like considered. Like in the CREC, we would have called it like a two-office church is uh, is how it functions. It is worth mentioning, too, we have two guys, both named Kevin, and they are uh, also pastors here. They are 1689 guys. So we have three who are, uh, you know, Pado, Pado Baptist, and then we've got two guys who are Credo, and uh, we have a lot of fun with that. But uh, it is, it's been good. We're, we're in a unique situation with Utah because of, uh, the Mormonism that surrounds us. So we've kind of said, no, we're going to, we're going to fight together on this one and, and, uh, learn how to be friends. No, that's great. Yeah. I, I didn't know about the two other guys because I always think of you and Brian and Dan with the King's Hall. And so I knew that all three of you, and Brian was the last to come along that he, he kind of held to the, (laughs) uh, the Pascal position. That's where I would be. Uh, in the 1689 realm, but I I didn't know that you had two other elders, Kevin and Kevin, Mm -hmm. uh, who, yeah, are, uh, yeah. You 16. hear less from uh, less from the Kevins because they're uh, one is a general contractor here in Ogden, and then uh, Kevin Love is the headmaster of St. Brennan's. But they're they don't have the uh, as much uh, media exposure, I guess you could say. 
you guys just won't let them get it that media exposure because no. they're Baptists. <laughs> right. you, you can't have that's that. Right. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, our topic for today, uh, you know, you guys with Kings Hall, you just started a brand new season, your second season with that podcast, dealing with uh, father uh, fatherlessness and the need for uh, fathers. And um, I can only assume, you know, me and Nathan were joking about this, my assistant, before we started recording, but I can only assume that perhaps, you know, season three would be like how to be more pro- uh, productive and plotting along, yes. like I, you know, my life for yours, you know, with bright heart, yes. and then you got yes. yeah, your father hunger. So I just feel like, luckily, Doug Wilson is prolific, and he's written, you know, a close to a hundred books. So you guys, <laughs> like, what what season, what podcast would you do next? Yes, you'd be out of material. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that, that's exactly right. We uh, we are very much relying on Doug uh, to continue his writing. <laughs> And uh, we we gratefully uh, will rip off his ideas and uh, you know put continue to push those yeah and and in your defense Doug even admits in his uh, my life for yours that he ripped that idea off of going through each room of the house I forget the guy yes. that, he, that he references so every every idea you know is coming from someone who took it from someone else any idea really worth having so uh, you're in good yeah, company yeah that's exactly right. I quote Doug all the time. So today we want to deal with that, you know, fatherlessness. We have an epidemic in our nation today. And sadly, uh, the evangelical church in many ways doesn't necessarily seem to fare better. And so, uh, yeah, I just want to talk about that. And I thought, you know, we could begin, you and I were talking as we were prepping a little bit, we could talk with root causes. Why is there so much fatherlessness in society today? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. A lot of it, I think, is it's really interesting societally in America when you look at, say, like the 1960s. So how much changed in the 1960s? You've got a number of things. Uh, Lyndon Johnson with his, you know, Papa Big Government Acts that went through uh, Congress and were passed in the 60s. Those had a huge bearing on the welfare state, which had a huge bearing on really replacing fathers. And you see this especially in the black community. Before the 1960s, uh, black fatherlessness was actually at a lower rate than among the white community. So, but post welfare state, uh, then you have fatherlessness soaring. And and I think you can make an argument, Thomas Sowell and other people have certainly made this argument that the black communities were being targeted for a lot of the welfare. Um, and, and again, we, we've seen this play out. They're trying to court voters, all this sort of thing. But you see this thrust and this push for the state really to replace the father um, even today, you see it with stuff like Black Lives Matter um, in that, you know, obviously affecting the black community, but Black Lives Matter, they're against nuclear families. But originally when that, that all that stuff became prominent in 2020, the one thing that they were especially against was fatherhood. So they, they would talk about non-nuclear families. Um, they, they really did not appreciate this idea of any sort of patriarchal father figure of the home. So again, the state is designed to replace that. I think you also have a lot of legal factors. Uh, 1964, you have Ronald Reagan, and you've got the really first um, divorce laws going through uh, with the uh, no-fault divorce. So 1964, Reagan is the governor of California. He passes that. Most people are usually shocked, by the way, when you find out that was Reagan. Um, he would go on to say it was one of the things he regretted doing, um, and probably as a conservative for, for, for really good reason. But fundamentally, what you've had because of those legal changes, it's very easy to divorce your husband. Um, you, you see it in the red pill and sort of the men going their own way movements today, right? Where they're starting to recognize like, you know, why is it that a wife can cheat on her husband? She can leave him, take the children, and he has to pay for the whole thing. He may not actually 
even you know biblically righteously, he may not be at fault at all, uh, but he's still going to bear the burden. I think some of those things have certainly impacted culture. And then I think at the church level, you can look at that and you can say, well, you, you really have, th- this is the way I look at it. Okay, in Exodus, you have the golden calf and you have Moses. There's an apostasy that happens. And then immediately the people fall into sexual immorality. Well, I mean, you can look at the 1960s. That's the sexual immorality. But there was an apostasy that happened first in America. And, and you can see this in the post, you know, and we, we call them the greatest generation. But I think they were already struggling. And the result is 1960s, the boomer generation, really well known for the, you know, breaking down of traditional sexual mores in society. And so all those things, too, are contributing to you have skyrocketing rates of children being born out of wedlock, um, really a huge factor in the breakdown of the family. Right. What do you think some of the reasons were for this apostasy that kind of really did happen, you know, before the boomers with the greatest generation? I, you know, my, my suspicion is that, you know, part of it just had to do with seeing such atrocities in the world and just thinking, how could there be a God? Do you think it's deeper than that? Do you think that that was one of the major factors that they just didn't have a full orbed theology for dealing with uh, sovereignty of God and suffering or, or those kinds of things? Yeah, I think it's a couple of factors. Number one is post-enlightenment thinking certainly was coming to fruition, right? It had been around obviously for a while, but I think really coming to fruition and you're seeing the long-term fruits of it start to come out of World War II. Um, so so I think that's a huge part of it. But I also think World War One in particular, when you unpack what was going on in that war, you really had Western Christendom foolishly going to war with each other. So before we have, you know, Mao and Stalin and Hitler and Mussolini and all the fascist communist dictators who take over the world, before that, you have really cousins in England and Germany, Prussia, and then also in Russia going to war with each other. And you've got Christendom slaughtering each other on the battlefield for fundamentally stupid reasons. This is why in this time period, it's it's a cataclysmic shift because it's really the undoing of the West that comes out of World War I. And I think that legitimately shook a lot of people's faith. Um, this is one of the reasons, it, it's usually one of the biggest critiques of post-millennialism that we find, right, is because of what happened in World War I and II, people say, you know, post-mill theology is dead. Uh, you know, the, the dream of Christendom really came crashing down. So we would obviously disagree with that, but but I think we do have to acknowledge the, the world in many ways uh, came unglued during that time period. And so what we're living with today is really like, you know, kind of the aftermath of World War II, what was established since then. You can see a lot of it even in, um, you know, American politics and American dispensationalism with the eventual founding of the state of Israel. And then, you know, I grew up with this uh, in Dis- Disby churches where it's like, you know, we're flying Israeli flags on our front porches and stuff like that. Um, so I think that just shaped a lot of it. Um, and I think, quite frankly, if you talk to a lot of the greatest generation, um, they didn't really have good bearings. Um, you're you're like 50 to 60 years after the, uh, the Civil War for a lot of those guys, which is kind of hard for us to fathom, right, that they they, they also lived through that period. That was a very disruptive period. Um, Calvinism was dying. This is one of the other arguments that I've made is that patriarchy and Calvinism go together. And with the rise of Unitarianism in America in the 1800s, you you really saw Calvinism and Puritanism waning 
And those were the things that were holding society together, particularly the nuclear family. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, just from my personal, you know, pastoral counseling, um, anytime there's an objection or a hesitancy or just a fear of, um, of wives submitting to husbands and uh, mm. patriarchy, um, I've always noticed that it, it goes hand in hand. It's usually the person who doesn't, um, doesn't like reformed theology. Uh, yes. believe it or not, not everybody, you know, in my church is a Calvinist. <laughs> Most are, you know, because I'm, I'm fairly outspoken in that regard. It's, it's a, a systematic, you know, way of theologically thinking that's going to influence everything that I, you know, every text that I cover, uh, reformed theology is, is there. Um, but there are individuals who aren't persuaded, um, by Calvinistic doctrine. And, uh, often that's the same individual who struggles with patriarchy. And I, you know, I think of, uh, what I, I believe it's Peter, uh, that he talks about, you know, and you are her daughter, speaking of Sarah, who called her husband, Abraham, her lowercase L Lord, um, master, you know, the head, uh, her head. And, uh, he said, you're, you're her daughters. If you do likewise, if you follow in her example, and, but then he goes on and say, says, uh, and do not fear anything that is frightening. And one of the things that I think gives us peace, whether we're a man or a woman, we all have someone, um, human authority placed by God in our lives that we have to submit to, to varying degrees, according to the word of God. Um, and to know that there's, that there's a Lord of Lords, right? Abraham was, you know, when you think like, who are these Lords that Jesus is Lord of, right? He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, he's King of earthly Kings and he's King of earthly Lords. And one example of an earthly Lord is a husband. And to know, you know, as a wife, uh, that there's a Lord over this Lord, um, who loves me and, um, and who is sovereign over this lesser Lord, my husband and guiding him, you know, that, that causes the, the fear associated with, uh, the commandment to submit to your husband, um, to not be so daunting, you know, that you don't have to fear that which is frightening. But if you don't believe that God's sovereign, um, you know, then then yeah, it's like, well, I know my husband. I, I don't, you know, I know his flaws. I know his weaknesses. And so um, I, it, at least if in no other way, I, I see a correlation there. Is there another correlation that you're referring to Calvinism and patriarchy? Yeah, no, I think that's right. And then I think too, like it, you'll watch like, uh, you know, Caddy Stanton and the other ladies who are pushing early wave feminism, which a lot of people mistakenly today are like, oh, first wave was fine. No, it really wasn't. Yeah. Um, you look at their theology and their background, those women were sincerely trying to replace male pastors, um, slowly granted. Um, but yeah, so they come on the scene, they're pushing feminism and the, th I mean, you can read their writing and the thing that they hate is Calvinism. Um, uh, mm. because you know, it, it, it's kind of, it's kind of like the reaction you would see people having, uh, to God's sovereignty, right? When, when people first come in, introduced to that doctrine, it's like, oh yeah, but, you know, man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, they get really frustrated. You can see it in them. But it's the same thing when you're talking about patriarchy and you're talking about submission. Like, just look up in the Greek in Ephesians 5. What does submission actually mean? It means somebody's in charge and somebody isn't. It means hierarchy, um, a number of, of, of those things. But it's also interesting. I think the connection also would be that, you know, you ask what has caused fatherlessness, feminism. I mean, feminism has been a cancer in the bones of the nuclear family, and it's something that I think today in the church especially, instead of addressing that and calling that out, what pastors have done is said, like, okay, let's do the Tim Keller. Let's try to make a way for them to coexist, right. you know, which fundamentally has been like 
you know, if you or I were to say, well, well, maybe I can just live with the cancer. Maybe it won't destroy me. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. How to live with cancer. Yeah. The, the third way, you know, Keller approach has been, um, that, that in itself has been a plague on modern evangelicalism for quite a while. Um, so f- the rise of feminism, and I, I think we could probably root, you know, no fault divorce within the larger banner of yes. feminism. Um, and then, you, you know, you said that, uh, with feminism, there was this simultaneous thing happening of like, there's this, um, this aversion towards patriarchy, but also, um, the, you know, the turning away from classically reformed doctrine and, and a, an aversion towards Calvinism. Do you feel like any of that had to do with, uh, you know, I always think of Charles Finney and the, you know, the second great awakening that wasn't so great. Uh, I mean, his systematic theology, I've read bits and pieces of it. I can't read the whole thing because I, you know, my IQ would plummet and I would no longer be qualified to be, you know, a husband or a father or a pastor. So I, you know, you can't read too much Finney and still be sane, but the little bit that I have been able to stomach, um, I mean, the guy was just a quack. He was, he was, and he was a God hating, like not just, he wasn't just stupid. He was wicked. He was a wicked man. And so, um, just hated the word of God and, uh, and twisted it and tweaked it every chance he got. And I feel, I feel like, you know, because the first great awakening, it's like, you've got, yeah, you've got the Wesleys, you know, but you've got Whitfield and you've got, you know, Edwards and, you know, um, it, it seems like with that rise of decisionism, emotionalism, um, this emphasis on man and his will and his choices, seems like a lot of that came in, in the second great awakening. And I'm sure we can find traces before that, you know, going all the way back to the enlightenment. But, uh, do you think that has anything to do with it? Some of the Charles Finney stuff? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. I think it's huge. And then kind of later influence, uh, but Billy Graham, um, I actually, believe it or not, Joel, I tortured myself by reading Jesus and John Wayne. And um, (laughs) one of the interesting things about that book that I think it may be the only thing that is historically accurate in the book um, is kind of her description of how Billy Graham bought, he, he really brought mass communication to Christendom. And, but that ended up being the death of Christendom and the rise of like the big, fast and famous Mega church mm-hmm. movement, like everything in mega church movements that we see today, and we think it, oh, this is so cool. It, it really was Billy Graham, and mm. I, I think that that culture has so dominated. Well, the the main thrust of Billy Graham was, well, if we're going to appeal to all of America through like a TV crusade type thing, then we have to gear our content so that it's ecumenical. We, which means, you know, we kind of have to water things down. We have to focus on quote unquote core doctrines. So Billy Graham is really, he's an early form of like gospel-centered types of ideology where let's just focus on the main thing, everything else, let's kind of ditch it. And uh, I think slowly that's just the watering down of Christendom and of Christianity in America. It makes it susceptible to things like feminism, right? To the point today where like even the conservative movement as a whole, even the part that would call itself, you know, mainline Christian I mean, you know, we, we've kind of said this over and over again. It's like they're, they're kind of limp-wristed and impotent because they, they don't want to unleash scripture. They don't want to go to headship and patriarchy and hierarchy and all the things that we find there. They're like, well, you know, let's let women work. And sure, maybe they can be pastors, but, you know, let's... But, but, but slowly the, gr- the ground gets eroded and it's like, well, what's left? Uh, not, right. not a whole lot. Right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, it's funny, but fundamentalism, and I know you agree with this because I've heard you talk about it, but, um, you know, a lot of different phrases that we could use, right? So the theological minimalism, you know, or the, um, just, um, 
uh, whittling down to the lowest common denominator. You know, this idea of um, here are a few doctrines, and we're going to defend you know these five or six doctrines because the you know the church is under attack, the Christian faith is under attack, and so we need all the fighting men we can get to link arms and preserve you know what is most precious. Um, and it's, you know, what's most precious. Well, you, you know, you could, you could print it on, um, on a track, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's about, you know, 350 words and, um, that's, what's most precious. And that's what we're going to defend. Um, and so you, you let go of all these other things, but it's, um, it's, it's, a it's a faithless strategy. It's too conservative. It's too, um, well, it's not, you know, it's fearful. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, if you think of, you know, the battle of Helm, Helm's Deep, you know, and it's like, mm. all right, like, well, you know, this wall has been breached, fall back, you know, to the inner wall, and then we're going to fall back again. Um, well, you know, there is a time for a tactical retreat. Um, I do think that that there is um, a, a biblical, you know, basis for, for that, employing that strategy. But um, at the same time, you don't want to fall back too soon. Sometimes it's like, you know, like one orc, you know, just barely, you know, climbed over the wall and we're like, fall back, you know, and it's like, wait a yes. second, like, why are we surrendering all of this ground? Because, um, because what we don't realize is that, you know, you fall back, but, but what just happened is, um, now this whole wall is breached and that whole portion of the city of the kingdom, um, all of its resources, all of its weaponry, um, all of its strengths, all of its advantages, tactical advantages are now in the hands of, the enemy. And so uh, I, I think in some ways it was just, whether it be apathy, theological and just spiritual apathy, or whether it be cowardice, um, but, you know, probably a little bit of both, but falling back too soon and surrendering some of these things and saying, well, it's okay. We can, you know, we can write it off like, yeah, it's a compromise. Yeah, it's a surrender, but God will be pleased in the end because we preserved what God cares about the most. You know, we're gospel centered and, and then gospel centered just becomes a euphemism for really um, gospel myoptic. It's only the gospel. Um, it, it's it, gospel. I, I, you know, I've stopped using the phrase to describe myself, which is a shame because I, in, on its face, it's a good phrase. Um, mm -hmm. And in the technical sense, I am a gospel-centered Christian, um, but I, I no longer use it unless I have time to offer, you know, like a 15-minute disclaimer because <laughs> yeah. uh, because gospel centrality has been be, been steamrolled into gospel myopticism. Um, and the best way I could illustrate it is um, it's basically become the young, reformed, and restless, you know, hip way of saying I'm a red-letter-only Christian. That's, mm -hmm. you know, and, and here's the thing, the red letter Christian who's like, just give me the words of Jesus, not the words of Paul, not the words, you know, like <laughs> as a, you know, it's only the words of, of Jesus that are actually from Jesus, you know, and, and then this was all, you know, it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. But the, the funny thing is the red letter Christian is actually in a better spot than, than today's gospel centered Christian, because at least the red letter Christian with the words of Jesus, that includes both law and gospel because Jesus actually gave yeah. commands. Uh, whereas like today, the gospel centered Christian, it's not like take, take the, the red letters from Jesus and, and then go ahead and divide that by about 10, you know, cause I mean, Jesus, so much of what he said was, was about hell and, and, and about money and about greed. And, um, these are the commandments of God, not one jot or tittle, you know, will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away before this law, like Jesus loved the law and he preached the law. And he, so, I mean, even the sermon on the Mount, you know, like how, what, what's, you know, percentage of of those three chapters in Matthew um, are only gospel you know and so so gospel centered has basically 
if you wanted to, you know, d- define it in in real clear terms, you're looking at probably maybe one percent of the Bible. So when someone says I'm gospel centered today, most of them, not all of them, because some of them still use the phrase and they mean it in the way that I do or the, the way that you do. Um, but a lot of them, I, I would say more more than half, um, if they say I'm a gospel centered Christian, what they're essentially saying is I'm a Christian who believes about one percent, one to two percent of the Bible. Yeah. You think that's yeah, fair? That, that, yeah, I think it is fair. Um, and it, like, you know, like you're saying, it just becomes this great watering down. And then I think that becomes the problem. Like you could even see this in the 60s where the church, because they had gone in many ways fundamentalist, um, you had a lot of the fundamentalizing, you know, let's build around core doctrines. Well, what comes in the early 60s, you've got the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. Um, it, which is just like a, a small meteor that becomes enormous and leaves a, a, like an earth-wide crater now. But it was, I think, because the church, if, if you're going to say we just have core doctrines, well, you know, is conception a core doctrine or, or the Bible's teaching on conception? For, for those people, the answer would be no. And so it was kind of like, well, yeah, fertility and fruitfulness, you know, don't, don't worry about that. It's not the gospel. And really what they mean is soteria. It's, it's not the doctrine of salvation, right? And, and, and I think that that becomes a problem though, because look at the church today. I mean, they're not equipped to deal with the sexual issue. That's been the the core front of the battle. Um, I think I was listening to, uh, you probably saw this on Twitter, but like, you know, there, there were more videos of JD Greer talking about how like the Christian church needs to be the safest place for somebody to come out as transgender. And I was like, JD, right. what are you? I mean, if if you had been taking a theologically maximal position and you had read cover to cover and you'd been studying this issue, like most faithful pastors should have been for the last couple decades or even a decade, then you're gonna know that there's there are actually clear answers to this. Right. Um, but yeah, that's the state of the church. And for the record, the church should be the safest place. Um for somebody to, because uh, what we're saying is to come out as transgender or to come out as, you know, LGBT, you know, QIL, LMNOP, you know, whatever it is, um, it, it, the church should be the safest place because what we're talking about is is a place to confess sin. So the church should be yeah, if, the safest place to confess sin. If you have repentance sin. in mind. But first, when you, exactly, when you say coming out, what do you mean by coming out? Um, that should mean confess sin because this is objectively sinful according to the word of God, even the desire, concupiscence, even the desire is sin. And then when you say, what do you mean when you say safe? Um, safe in the sense that like um, it's the place that when sin is confessed comes alongside you to help you mortify your sin by grace so that your soul doesn't go to hell. Amen. Yeah, the church should be the same. But what you mean, JD, when you say the safest place to come out is uh, you don't mean uh, safest for your soul eternally when you confess sin by helping you put it to death. You mean um, the place that will affirm your sin. This should be the the place that won't that won't correct you, that won't disagree with you, uh, that that won't um, say anything that's going to hurt you or offend you or any any of these. You know, and we know that's what he's saying. We know that that's what Andy Stanley is saying. We know that you know the the pastor that the clip's been going around. You know, the Twitterverse uh, from. Mm-hmm you know, Rick Warren's church, you know, saying, well, I don't, I don't yeah. know if, you know, two gay dudes, if two sodomites are married, 
Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, they become converted and they start going to your church and they ask one of the pastors for counsel, like, should we get divorced? Well, God hates divorce. That's a hard one. That's man, that's a toughie, you know, and you were and never married. Like, <laughs> right. It's just, yeah, exactly. You were never married, you know? Um, and, and he throws in, you know, he throws in the issue of polygamy, you know, and says, well, you know, what, what about when you're doing, you know, evangelism in an in, in Islamic country, you know, and a man has five wives, you know, and then he comes to Christ. Um, do you tell him, to, you know, like to divorce four of them? Do you, which, which one does he get to, to keep, you know, or is he bound to keep the first and the other four were illegitimate? And, and even that is something that like, we, we just, we're too bashful, right? We're too, we're too, um, embarrassed by the word of God to be, because there's a clear answer to that. Um, in my opinion, the answer is, uh, that man is a Christian, uh, his wives, they are now a Christian household. His wives need to, uh, confess and obey the gospel. Uh, and confess Christ as Lord. They need to uh, train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and he can't be an elder. And and you don't say that this was right or that he should do it again. Um, but the, the difference is, uh, it's a category difference. Um, two dudes aren't married. It's not marriage. We can talk about all the flaws with polygamous, that, that marriage, and the flaws that the Abraham shouldn't have um, married you know, Sarah's servant. That was a bad move. Lamech is the first example of polygamy in the Bible, and he's not a great guy to emulate, you know, emulate his example. He's not, you know, but, but the fact that we, we, we don't even, that we can't even detect a difference um, is, just shows us how far down the rabbit hole of perversion we've gone. So any, any other yeah, thoughts on that? If not, I've got some other questions, go ahead. Yeah. Just kind of wrapping that all up. I would just say like, what we need to see a lot of times as Christians is that, okay, all the promotion of homosexuality, all the promotion or the even desensitization that is going on so that, you know, you watch so much Will and Grace or you know about it in the culture, it's in every movie, so that you become, your gag reflex becomes desensitized. We mm -hmm. have to fundamentally understand all of that is a war on fatherhood. It's a war on families. It's a war on God's order and structure. They'll try to make you believe that two dudes who, you know, purchase on the black market a child and then fly home with him, that, that they're doing a loving, familial, fatherly thing. They're not. And so I think we just need to continue to point that out and see that um, all these gross forms of perversion of fatherhood or just direct attacks, on the other hand, we have to see that all of it is they're, they're trying to destroy ultimately the fatherhood of God and the order that he's created in the world. So the bent right. is chaos. And, and then again, as Christians, we have to oppose that, that satanic uh, push from uh, the enemy. Amen. Yeah, the, the attack, when it really comes down to it, is an attack not on fathers, but the father, the father of life, yes. from whom all blessings come from and who all earthly fathers flow from. And ultimately, their authority resides with him. There's no inherent authority, human authority. It's all vested authority that comes from God. And because God is immortal um, and, you know, no one can, he dwells in brilliant light, unapproachable light. And he's, you know, he's invulnerable. Nobody can get God. So Satan always attacks his image bearers and fills the heart of wicked men and wicked women to attack his image bearers, right? If I can't take out God, I'll, I'll take out the next best thing. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so, so there's the whole issue of, you know, um, theological minimalism, um, fundamentalism in all the the wrong ways. Um, and we don't we're not using fundamentalism to say you know a guy who who believes in six literal days of creation and a young earth. I, I'm one of those guys. I'm I'm pretty sure you're one of those guys. Is that yeah. Right? 
Yeah. Yep. Right? We're both, you're like, yeah, we're both Christians. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, like, amen. Um, you know, so w- when we say fundamentalists, we're not talking about uh, guys who just believe the Bible. We're talking about fundamentalism in the sense of guys who have truncated the Bible into, you know, four or five things. And so that theological minimalism, that lowest common denominator, um, you know, and and the the rusting, eroding away of of a robust, you know, Christian uh, theology that was an issue, um, and then you know you're you're saying the greatest generation and um, and you know feminism and all, that's where feminism came in. All these things are different contributors. Uh, no fault divorce was one of the things you mentioned. All the multiple multifaceted you know attack on fathers um, and and fatherhood has been on decline. So all that being said, where are we at now? Uh, you know, one of the things that we were talking about before we started recording is just some of the statistics now, you know, uh, in terms of like how much, how rampant divorce really is. And when it comes to divorce, um, you know, cause, cause what I continue to hear people, you know, do, you know, the classic, you know, mother's day sermon is, you know, thank God for mothers. Father's day sermon is, you know, do better men. You're, you're lousy. And, and so, um, still to this day, when you think of divorce and these kinds of things, like most pastors and most Christians, they think, yeah, men are adulterous, you know, and they, their porn habits and, you know, and, and yeah, men are sinners. Men need Christ. Men need to man up and, uh, and to repent and to lead in repentance and all those things. But that's, um, I just feel like we're, we're not addressing the problem because we're just not willing to look at the cold, hard facts. We're not willing to live in reality. And the reality is that, that men are sinners, but women are sinners too. And some of the statistics are very unfavorable towards women. Can we look at some of those? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think it's because it creates this environment where we just give women a pass on everything. So I think there's sort of like a, you know, we talk about, I have talked about with Michael Foster, like vintage foolishness, right? Foolishness that matures um, generationally and gets worse Mm. over time. I think this is certainly true on the women's sin because it hasn't been dealt with. So yeah, I mean, these statistics go against everything that you find in the mainstream media, but you've got 70% of divorces in America are initiated by women. 70%. That is an astronomically high number. 70%. Yeah. 70% of women are initiating divorces. And then this is a really interesting kind of subset of this. When you go to college education... So college-educated women initiate divorce at a rate higher than 90%. Okay. So just to make sure that that people don't miss that, because this is staggering. Uh, So you're saying across the board, out of every divorce that happens in America, uh, 70% of those divorces and married couples in America are initiated by the wife, not the husband, but the wife. That's correct. And so that, that leaves 30%. So that means, you know, 70 is over two times. So every time you see a divorced couple, um, you've, you've got, uh, for every one of those, you've got almost two and a half times, uh, the chance that the woman is the one who initiated yep. that divorce, not the man. And then you're saying for women who are college educated, um, that it's over 90%. So over, over 90%. nine times. Yeah. But, it, but it's yeah, just, which, you know, but men, men need to be better and women are great. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that's kind of what's interesting about it is like, okay, so you go to the Matt Chandler stuff, you know, Jesus wants the rose. Um, you, you just, the stuff that we kind of laugh at, uh, but yet it's still predominant in the churches where, you know, I know it's different at our church. I'm, I'm sure it is at yours as well, but, um, you know, we're actually preaching to women and saying, Hey, you know, 
you have to deal with the, the sins that are particular to women. And here's what they are. Here's the ways that you're prone to sin against your husband and nag him and, you know, on and on the list goes. So we, we address that, uh, but the culture at large doesn't. In fact, right. what we're told, uh, there was a, a good book by Christina Hoff Summers. It was called The War Against Boys. And it goes back to like the mid 80s to present day. And it's basically talking about how like the whole education system is like the world is slighted in favor of men and women are always getting the short end of the stick. But then she goes through and she unpacks the dad and she's like, it's the opposite. The opposite is actually true that women are favored right. at every turn. And so here's yeah. a female author saying that and saying, no, no, that literally like the entire school system is set up so that women can succeed. Mm -hmm. And as a result, boys, men are suffering. So yeah, I think that what's the long term of all of that? Well, I think that there's a lot of men who feel this sort of black-pilled feeling of like, what am I supposed to do about this? The system is rigged against me, right? We had the case of Jeff Younger in Texas. Uh, I don't know if you were following this, but uh, his wife wants to make their son transgender. And Jeff right. was like, absolutely not. And and it goes to court and the, the judge is like, no, not only is this going to happen, uh, Jeff, you're not allowed to talk about it. And, you know, this is like, so as men, it's easy to understand why a lot of us, a lot of men would feel totally just silenced and feel a pretty great sense of oppression. Right. And real quick, just to go back for a second, I completely agree. And we'll keep moving with that because there's a lot to unpack. But yeah, to play the devil's advocate for anybody who would counter, you know, with the earlier statistics that you just presented, you know, seven, across the board, 70% of divorce is, is initiated by women. And then when it comes to college educated women who are in marriage um, that ends in divorce, it's over 90% of the wife who initiated that divorce, not the husband. One of the counters that I frequently have heard from people is they'll say, you know, because I'm, I'm aware of those statistics and uh, people say, well, the reason why women initiate divorce more than men is because men are physically stronger. And so divorce, leaving, abandonment, physically retreating from the marriage is the only um, course of action that, that a woman has at her disposal. Uh, whereas the man doesn't feel as much of an urgency or a need to get out of the home and get out of the marriage because he's physically superior to his wife. He's not physically threatened. And so, you know, the real reason why women are divorcing their, their uh, husbands, um, you know, several times more than husbands are divorcing their wives is because there's domestic violence in the home, there's physical abuse, and that's always the guys. So we talked about this a little bit before we started recording. Can you read uh, the statistics on that, Eric? Yeah, and, and Joel, you're ab absolutely right. There is domestic violence in the home. Unfortunately, for the people who make that argument, so this is from one study, it says that 70%, 70% of domestic violence in relationships is perpetrated by the women. Yeah. So again, it's not like a you know, 51-49 split here. And the men yeah, that's under report. The, yeah, that's the other thing they found is men are much less likely to go to the authorities or anybody else and say, yeah, my, you know, my wife, my girlfriend, whatever has been, she's been beating me. Right, but 70%, Joel, like that. that's high. Shameful. Yeah, that's high. So 70, so this is the same statistic as divorce. So 70% mm -hmm. of women across the board, whether the, you know, that's, that's the average of college educated, non-college educated across the board, 70% uh, of women in America who are married, who get divorced, 70% uh, of them initiated that divorce. And then when it comes to 
domestic violence, if there's domestic violence in a home, in a marriage between husband and wife, again, it's 70% of the women who initiated that violence. And you and I have both, you know, um, you know, talked about this and not, not with specificity, not sharing events, you know, particular events, or certainly not sharing names, uh, but both of us over the years in pastoral ministry um, have dealt with couples within the church and not just within, you know, J.D. Greer's church, you know, but within, you know, true gospel preaching churches like yours and mine, yeah. uh, we've dealt with married couples where, um, where it's it's the wife who is physically assaulting her husband and i've i've had to deal with those cases and it, and it's really challenging um to be just just practically you know telling the husband you you must get out um you you must physically you have to run um and and when you run here's another thing like you can't push her because you people don't understand how much stronger men are than women you cannot you cannot push her even just uh, to try, because I, I've dealt with cases where where the the husband has been cornered, physically cornered, in, back into a bedroom in the home, and she's blocking the door, um, and then she's you know throwing things at him and beating and hitting him, and it's like I, you've got to get out of there, um, but you can't push her because I've dealt with those cases too, where I was just trying to leave and I pushed her, and she you know flew and hit the wall and. Dude, it's a night. It's a nightmare having to pastor through those kinds of situations. Um, I'll, I'll just say, I'll say it like this: um, in my pastoral experience, which, granted, I'm, I'm not 70 years old. I haven't been doing it for 50 years, but 10 years, give or take, uh, in my decade of pastoral experience, I've uh, never actually uh, counseled a married couple uh, where the husband um, hit his wife. I have only counseled in all the domestic violence issues, which there have been a few. Uh, it has always been uh, the wife is physically hitting. I'm talking about closed fist hitting her husband. Um, and the most that a husband has done is pushed her to try to get out of the way to run out of the house. Um, that's yeah, it's that, it's that's really interesting, experience. Joel. I, I've had I can think of a handful right of guys who were yeah there was legit like you know, domestic violence. But I would say on the whole, uh, my experience in 10 or so plus years, uh, it's more than that now, but of pastoral counsel and that sort of thing, I, I would say it's it's much more common to see. It just doesn't, it, it gets looked down on as, oh, it's not a big deal. But it's like, again, wives who are throwing things, slapping, uh, hitting, that sort of thing. It, it happens surprising number of times I think for most people would be shocked uh, to know how much that's happening. But it's also interesting. I was talking to a pastor who's in his 70s now, um, sort of at the retirement age, kind of seen it all across the last, you know, 30, 40 years in ministry. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's weird because when like 35 years ago, he said it was almost always, it seemed like predominantly like kind of deadbeat guy, come on, get it together. Um, you know, and the ladies are like, you know, sweet ladies like standing by. I, I'm kind of, you know, oversimplifying this. Uh, but he said, you know, it's it's amazing. In the last 10 years, he said, how many times I'm I'm dealing with women who are just like, you know what, I'm not emotionally fulfilled, I'm leaving him. And the, he said, it's interesting how many of the guys are like, it's he's a good guy. Yeah, he's not, you know, a character from a Christmas prince on Netflix or something. But he's you know, he's providing, he's he's meeting all the basic needs. You know, he's taking the family to church, but... Uh, it it kind of goes to the um, 
I think it was last year or the year before, you know, Adele, the singer, she leaves her husband and she goes on Oprah and Oprah's like, why did you leave your husband? And she said, well, you know, I just wasn't a hundred percent happy all the time. And so I decided to leave him. And Oprah said, you know what, honey, that is such a powerful story for women today. And I'm sitting there <laughs> thinking like, this is horrible advice. I mean, shamefully arrogant, self-centered. Um, nobody is telling them the, the reality of that situation, right? That you're destroying your own life. You're destroying your children's life. You're, you're wrecking this guy's life because you weren't 100% happy. Well, like who's telling these people this stuff that you, that you deserve to be 100% happy all the time? Guarantee you Adele's not 100% happy now after she left. But, but again, yeah, I think that you're seeing this trend where it's like more and more in counseling. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually the women because that's right. in those sins haven't been dealt with. And with that, just to give a theological disclaimer to the listener. Um, so w when we think in terms of the doctrine of total depravity, um, pe people are totally depraved across the board. If we were measuring statistics, it would be equal across the board. Uh, we believe, you know, David doesn't just say, you know, in sin did my mother uh, give birth to me, but in sin did my mother conceive me. And so from conception, because of the fall, because of the fall of Adam and sin entering the world, um, every single human being, all of his posterity has been born with a sin nature and conceived with a sin nature. And so when we speak of total depravity, distinguishing that for a moment from utter depravity, total depravity refers to sin at the level of the heart. It, it's speaking of the inward man, meaning that all his inclinations, all his motives and incentives and thoughts um, are geared towards self and ultimately in rebellion against God. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says the mind of the sinful man, um, it, it does not submit to God's law, nor can it. And so it's unwilling and unable apart from conversion. And so um, all people are totally depraved. So if we're speaking of man, our biblical anthropology, if we're speaking of man um, inwardly, at the inward level, the level of the heart, all men, and so that would include both men and women, are equally sinful internally at the level of the heart apart from christ uh, from conception apart from conversion all all both men and women old men young men black men white men women men all, all across the board every single human being is equally totally depraved equally sinful at the internal level however to to apply an illustration to that thinking about rearing children and parenting um every child is equally totally depraved apart from christ um, but not every child is equally misbehaved in their outward actions, meaning that internal sin of total depravity does not necessarily um, outwardly manifest itself equally with each child. There are better behaved children and there are worse behaved children. And what makes the difference? This is what I'm getting to. What makes the difference is not um, nature, it's nurture. At the, if we speak of this at the nature level internally, well, every child is conceived totally depraved, um, but not every child that total depravity doesn't equally uh, manifest itself through actions and and deeds, behaviors, speech, words, uh, attitude. All that that varies. There's massive disparities from child to child, 
And all of that, uh, the d- distinguishing factor for that is not nature, total depravity, but nurture, parenting. Um, is the child disciplined in the way that the Bible says it, they should be disciplined? Are they loved in the way that the Bible says they should be loved? And so my question is, going back to, because I love the term that you coined, the vintage, what was it, vintage sin or vintage what? Yeah, vintage foolishness. Yeah. Vintage foolishness. So so just for an individual person, if their sin is left unchecked, if a child is raised in a home where the parents are absent, it's a hands-off, laissez-faire approach, there's no biblical discipline, there's no correction offered, they're allowed to do whatever they want, You know, they're always watching TV, every time they whine and complain, they get what they want, they're never corrected, um, just at an individual level, that child is going to be a monster, and not just at the heart level, because every, every person, again, apart from saving faith in Christ, apart from being given a new heart, we're all monsters at the level of the heart inwardly but that monstrous heart is going to be is going to be full on full display um now what happens if it's it that vintage foolishness if it's not just an individual child uh, but that that child is not just 5 years of neglect of discipline and correction um but it's 50 years and now they're they're a grown old uh, older adult and not just one individual but generationally Right? What if there was one one type of person that that they weren't corrected, and then they trained and society trained their uh, posterity not to be corrected, and theirs not to be? What would that be? That would be women. They're called women. That's what it is. That is what we have done as men. That's what the church has done. So I'm not saying we're not responsible. So my whole point is to say this. We're Calvinists. We understand the doctrine of total depravity. We understand the doctrine of concupiscence. We understand all these different things. We are not saying that women are inherently more sinful than men. What we are saying, though, is that in terms of outward manifestations of sinful behavior according to God's moral law, women have been, by and large, less checked by the church for generations, and that has an effect. Would you agree with that, Eric? Yeah, completely. And in fact, you can you can find this in books like Leon Podol's book, The Church Impotent, but for a long time, like centuries in the church, um, we've been teaching that women are actually, it's the opposite of what we're saying, that women are actually more holy. Women are more prone to be spiritual. That's mm. the assumption. And um, you can actually read this, and I've seen reformed pastors who kind of uh, make statements where it's like, you know what, if there's sin, it's always the man's fault. And I think you have to be really careful because we do want to say, ultimately, the man needs to take responsibility for his household. But if you, for example, if you approach every counseling situation and you walk into it saying, I don't care what's going on in this house, it's ultimately his fault. Well, I mean, that's going to color the way you do the counseling. And I think what, what we actually need to be aware of is, look, women have been told that they're more spiritual, they're more prone, like they have a, a nature that is not only the opposite of being more depraved, that they're more holy, right? right. They've been kind of the spoiled kid, I think, culturally speaking, um, right. for a long time. And so what's happened is they have that that training. Now, I think what is really cool is that when you get a healthy environment, when, when you get preaching that is like Paul's, like think about Paul, where he he goes through the list of sins, you know, Ephesians 5 and 6, there's commands, there's um, commands that are specific to the sex, meaning, you know, why do we have to tell fathers not to exasperate children? Well, because fathers are prone to do that. Why do you have to, you know, some people have said this, why is Paul only say there's a direction for women to be modest? Why isn't there a parallel passage for men to be modest? 
Well, because that is a particularly feminine direction of sinning, right? Women mm. love to be lusted after. Like, so Paul is being smart. He's saying, look, these are the areas where you're prone to sin. And it's the same way if, you know, I have three boys and I don't address them all 100% identically because I have to know the grain of each kid. And so I think in our address to the people, we have we have to be the same way. Now today, I think, yeah, you're just going to have to be realistic and say, you know, uh, women have not been preached hard at. And so we've got to, to some extent, we've, we've got to correct that problem. That doesn't mean that we don't, like, we, we're going to stop addressing men's sins or anything like that. Um, we're still calling men to be leaders in their home and to take ultimate responsibility, yes. But um, yeah, certainly to know the cultural melu in which all that's happening. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and, and I like what you said in terms of like, you know, Paul addressing one thing with women and then, you know, it's almost like, you know, a father addressing one thing with one of his kids, you know, and, you know, correcting one of them. And then that kid responds by saying, well, you know, my brother, so why don't you talk to him? Uh, You know, my sister, um, well, it does, it doesn't work that way. Um, we're, we're right. This isn't this egalitarian steamrolled androgynous, you know, kind of like, no, God, God has baked disparities, um, into the world, hierarchy into the world, differences, diversity, uh, and diversity uh, of thought, diversity of giftings, and diversity of of propensities and vulnerabilities and weaknesses, um, and and that that's been baked into the the world that God made, and um, and that's you know with each individual person, but also between gender, and so even like with the fruit of the spirit. I remember um, having people, uh, several members of the church when I was pastoring in California, very angry at me because I was preaching on uh, the fruit of the spirit, and I said that um, the fruit of the spirit um, are not genderless, and uh, and I said that you know the fruit of the spirit, uh, the fruit of the spirit is the manifestation of the spirit, um, but the the spirit, the per- third person of the Trinity. Um, his characteristics, who he is, manifest differently uh, through a man and and through a woman. And so basically what I was arguing is I was trying to say, uh, you know, when Jesus braids a whip out of cords in John chapter 2 and starts beating people and throwing over the money changers' tables, um, Jesus is modeling for us uh, perfectly self-control and gentleness. Yes. Self-control. So the, the first, the fruit of the spirit, it's not like a toolbox where I'm going to take out one fruit at a time. I'm going to take out a hammer for this portion of the project, and I'm going to put it back. I'm going to grab a screwdriver. So right now I'm exercising love, but self-control is on the back burner. It's not really <laughs> in play. Uh, that's not right. the way that, no, no, Jesus was full of the spirit. He fully embodied all of the spirit and therefore all the fruits of the spirit, all the characteristics of the spirit were present in the life of Jesus at all times. So, so that means there was never a moment where Jesus is not being loving. There's never a moment that he's not being self-controlled. There's never a moment he's not being gentle, which means I say all that back to bring it back to gender and the distinctions of the fruit of the spirit in terms of their expressions in men and women. Uh, What that means is that um, apparently a man uh, can, can, this would be, you know, some extenuating circumstances. I'm not saying he can do it on a daily basis, but apparently it is possible for a man uh, to make a whip. And to start lashing it at people uh, without breaching uh, the fruit of the spirit that is self-control. I don't right. believe this is my my you know view, but I don't believe that a woman could ever do that. 
I don't believe that there would be a scenario, right? In self-defense, that, that's different. But Jesus is, he's, he's the aggressor, for lack of a better word, in this scenario, right? I mean, the true aggressors are those who are defiling his, his father's house. But, um, but, you know, at the phys- he's the one who makes it physical. And my point is, I don't think there would be, ever be a scenario where a Christian woman in a godly manner could initiate you know, take, I'm going to take a whip into this, you know, into this den of thieves and start, you know, rounding up the tables uh, be, because men and women are self-control looks different in women yeah. than it looks in men. So all, cause that's one of the counters that I receive sometimes pastorally over the years is people say, well, all nine of the fruit of the spirit, which first I wouldn't say it's an exhaustive list, but let's just go with that for a moment. Um, all nine of the fruit of the spirit are given to Christians, period, whether it's a Christian man or a Christian woman. So both men and women are called to be, you know, uh, self-controlled. Both men and women are called to be gentle. And and then what I would say is I would go over to Peter, first Peter three and say, yeah, but, but why do you think that, that this is then reiterated specifically for women, a quiet and gentle spirit? Well, well men are called to gentleness because they're called to the fruit of the spirit. And one of the fruit of the spirit is gentleness. Correct. Men are called to gentleness, but quietness and gentleness being rooted together and being described as, as a chief uh, characteristic of beauty for a woman is different than, than the gentleness that a man is called to aspire to. And I think that's a diff- difficult theological con- concept for people to grasp, especially in, in modern church settings where we've just steamrolled We've just steamrolled it all together. And so we look at the fruit of the spirit and we say, it's not that there's no distinction whatsoever for how these are going to be expressed between men and women. This is just the list. And, and then we determine, and this list, if we're really going to be honest, this is more of a feminine list than it is a masculine list. Um, meaning that the spirit himself, yeah, he is he, the Holy Spirit, but his qualities are, are really the, the qualities that are more naturally embodied by a woman. So really, what, what is the call to a Christian man? It's to become more like a girl. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I think part of it is like, okay, even when in particularly like you see this in the Latin, but when you say man, right, veer, courage, it's the same word for courage. So when you're talking about masculinity and what it means to be a man, there's going to be certain traits that are pretty intrinsic. This is why Joshua is being told repeatedly, like, have courage, act like a man, have courage, like on repeat. You wouldn't hear necessarily the same things said to a woman about what it means to be a woman, right? It, like you said, it's generally gentleness, quiet spirit. And that's because of the marriage relationship and her relationship to her husband, which requires submission. He's called to lead, which is more of in the bent of courage. She's called to submit and to help, which is really more in the bent of gentleness and a soft spirit. And and, and I would take all this back too, though, right? So we're talking about husbands and the difficulty in marriage counseling and stuff like that. Fundamental question that a lot of people don't ask is, uh, I was reading a book on modesty by Wendy Shallot, pretty interesting Jewish lady. And she says in there though, she's like, every time I see like a woman being a whore, I always say to the girl, where's your father? Does your father know what's going on? <laughs> you know, and, and people are like, oh, you're one of those patriarchy people. And she said, what's so bad about belonging to someone who loves you? And it, it really struck me that the question we're not asking a lot of women is, where, where are their fathers? Who is the father that sent them to college to live in a co-ed dorm and to fornicate and, and who let the mother give them the birth control pill on their way out the door? Like, mm-hmm. where is dad saying, put some clothes on? You know, one of the first things that the father does, our father, after uh, the fall into sin 
is he sees fig leaves and he's like, no, 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 you're going to go back upstairs and you're going to put more clothes on. <laughs> that is not acceptable. We, we, we don't no. tolerate that. There's, there's rules and there's order. Well, this is the stuff of fathers. You know, and I've said to the, the, the guys in the church here quite a bit, when Paul tells Titus, there's disorder, there's chaos. And so what do you do in Crete when you have disorder and chaos? He said, I want you to create order by appointing elders. What are elders? They're the exemplary fathers in their community. So I, I've yeah. often said fathers are God's instrument for creating order in a world of chaos, right? You are to rule the chaos. You are to set boundaries for your girls just as much as your boys. But I think especially, we talk about how fatherlessness impacts men, but I think so much of the feminism and the destruction of society that's been brought on by the female sex, it, that too could just be traced back to where were the fathers? That's good. Well, um, so I feel thoroughly discouraged. <laughs> I've yes. discouraged myself. You've discouraged me. We've discouraged each other. Um, and this yeah. is kind of right where you guys have left it with the King's Hall. You just, you've left us, you know, in the midst of discouragement, but I'd like to not do it here with Right Response Ministries. So I'm going to ask Cliffhanger. you, yes. um, I'm going to ask you, you know, what, without, you know, without delving into a million different things, what, what are just a couple things that we could end on that would be hopeful. What can we do? What can we do about this? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it is um, a lot of times when we go into analysis mode, which you know I'm prone to do quite a bit. The reason that we have to realize why we're doing it, and it's really like a diagnostic tool, right? We want to know what's go wrong, what's gone wrong, so that we can fix it. And I, I think that the other thing that I would tell people is there's kind of two things that need to happen. One is like you know people are like, yeah, the legal system needs to change. I'm like, okay, well, unless you're going to go get a law degree and you're a millionaire and you're going to start funding some of these efforts, I'm not really sure what me personally I'm going to do about changing, you know, uh, federal law. It does need to be changed and we need legions of people who are working on that. I think that it is very true that, you know, really lawyers, whether you like it or not, lawyers today are sort of like the front line. That's where the war is being fought. So certainly we need Christian men and, you know, pushing forward that ball on the legal frontier. I, that's absolutely true. But I think for the average guy, I think about this for myself. It's like, okay, again, Jordan Peterson, clean your room. You know, you're worried about the legal structures, but you're rude to your wife. You know, you're worried about the legal structures. Well, start with yourself. You know, start cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. Um, there's so many people I found in the sort of like men going their own way, red pill, uh, people that would even follow our stuff online. It's like, okay, you know, you're struggling. You've got the marriage issues. You, you know, kids don't respect you. You're trying to figure this out. Well, okay, so which elders do you submit to? What are their names? Yeah. Where's your church? Is it a healthy community? Because honestly, Joel, if you don't have that, I'm not really sure how you're going to make progress as a Christian being sanctified in the word of God, because this is really what this comes down to, is people need regenerate hearts, they need to be consuming God's word day and night. They need to build their life on the rock, which again is the word of Christ, the law of Christ. We need to be starting there. And so I think a lot of it is just, it's very, very actually simple, but it's the difficult work of saying, well, you have to get your own life in order, right? right. If you're a father, then you start, just look at the biblical roles for, you know, what are you actually called to do? And then you start walking those out and you have men around you, including your pastors who hold you accountable to it. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that's the simplest way 
that I know to outline that. What do you do? And it is hopeful because we've seen it. I mean, I'm sure you could say the same about your church community. We could say it about refuge. I know you can go to Moscow and say the same thing because I've seen people repent, right? We have pastors who will tell men who aren't working and their wives are like, you're being a loser. You're supposed yeah. to be a provider. What are you doing? Go get a job. And, we, and mm-hmm. we've seen the fruit of it, and it is actually really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all that is great. Amen a thousand times. But let me press on you for just a second, Eric, and then I'll let you yeah. go. We'll, we'll close. You said, do start obeying these commands. We can't just start, you know, it's not just top down, right? It's not yet. Yeah, some of you may be called to be lawyers. Some of you are going to run for, you know, civil office and these kinds of things. And that's good. We need Christians in politics. Yeah. We need them in law. We need all, you know, all of Christ for all of life. Yes and amen a million times, every square inch. But for most of us, you're saying it starts at home, just obeying these commandments in your marriage with your children. But then you, you said something particular, and I agree with you hundred percent, but you said, um, none of that's really going to happen if you don't belong to a church? Who are your elders? Can you name them? Who are you submitted to? And here's the email that I get all the time, and I know you do too. Is um, and and so I I, I want to hear from you because I'm I'm still kind of making up my mind. I'm not sure what to think because on one hand, right, so I'm a Calvinist and I'm a post millennial at the same time, which is a sometimes those, those two things conflict with one another. <laughs> you know, I'm a suspicious. Yeah. You know, I'm suspiciously hopeful. You know, and um, and so I'm not really sure. You know, it's like the two. I've got the post mill angel on one shoulder and and Calvin on the other, and I'm not sure who to listen to right now. But I get emails from guys saying, um, Joel, I agree with you 100. percent I cannot. As God is my witness, I've been driving a two-hour radius, looking at churches for the last three years. I cannot find one church that would agree with what you and Eric have just said. If I went in there with my marriage and we were having problems immediately, every single church I visited, it would it would all be my fault. There would be no correction towards women. None of that is in the preaching. None of that is in the ethos. None of that's in the community. My wife, if I do go to church and I take my family to church, I risk my wife being further reinforced in feminism and turned by that church against me. Uh, and and I continue to hear people say that basically like the, 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 the pickings are so slim out there when it comes to godly churches, especially on this issue, um, that a lot of guys, uh, it's not like even necessarily they've just given up. There's plenty of losers who've given up and just black yeah. and they're just, they're out. Right. And so I'm not talking, I'm in defense of the guys who haven't given up who are actually still striving to be men, but they're like, I've got a better chance and, and, uh, in leading my wife and pro- protect, I have to protect her, not just from the godless culture. I have to protect her from churches. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've got guys moving to our church. I know you guys do, you know, we've got guys coming from, uh, multiple people coming from Canada who are now members in our church, you know, and then, and from yeah. other States, you know, and from Georgia and from, um, Michigan and from, you know, and all, all these different things. And of course, California and, and Oregon and, um, and they're coming, one, because they want to get out of, you know, godless totalitarian places like Canada and California and Oregon, um, you know, but but they're also coming, you know, because they could, you know, they could they don't, don't have to go to Georgetown, Texas, right? There are a few other, you know, more conservative red red state options that they could choose from, but they're, they're going to Moscow, they're going to Ogden, they're going to Phoenix, Durban and James White, and they're going to Georgetown, Texas, north of Austin with Covenant Bible Church, uh, where, where I'm at. And... Uh, and like, like, that's it. Like I keep hearing for like that, you know, and I know there are a few others or they're going to foster, you know, Michael Foster or Dale, you know, but like, but it's, it's, I'm sure, you know, that's not an exhaustive list. I'm sure we could come, but it would still be a, a short list. If, if we listed yeah. every, you know, if we actually did the research, 
Um, and so wh- what do you say to, to that guy who's like, all right, like, yeah, I'm not going to change federal law and, um, and you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. You know, it starts, uh, it starts at home, starts with making my bed, but you just said that one of the key factors in doing those things as a, as a husband and as a father in my household, that's going to uh, lend towards my long-term success is being surrounded by this church community. And where the heck do you find that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in some sense, it is a very difficult question, and you you do have to take into account uh, generally in those conversations. That's you're right. Probably the biggest one that we get is, "Hey, here's my situation. What do I do with my life?" Um, and I wish we had time to answer all of them. But right, I, 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 there's I think a lot what, that I can't even respond to. Yeah, can't even do that. But but I think bottom line for me, when you're faced with a tough decision, I always go back to core principles. Okay, I know from scripture, I don't have to guess. I don't have to like divine the will of God in Mark Driscoll fashion. I don't have to do that. I know what God says about church being participant in the body of Christ, um, having elders submitting to them. I know and have seen in my life how important, how vital, how essential that is. Like, if you want to live in a Christian, particularly as a Christian in a world that is hostile to you and to the church, then you have to have brothers and sisters who are not just Christians. I mean, this is the thing. Like, I think there are a lot of churches in America that are Christian, but not necessarily pushing the ball forward, not missionally aligned, not really forming much of a resistance. Like, that's not, this isn't the time to be a part of that, I don't think. So, and I think that's why so many people are moving. And that, that's what a lot of this comes down to. I've been in those situations too, where I, fundamentally I've said, look, we don't have that church. Um, we're in a community where I can't drive three hours to even find one. Uh, maybe it's not even in the same state as you. Right. And I basically came to the point where it's like, look, I do not want to live in Utah. I do not like Utah. I do not like a state that is run by Mormons. I don't like the desert. I don't like that price of housing. And you go to many of our areas where there's good churches. Texas is probably a little different, but Moscow, Ogden, not cheap places to live. Mm-hmm. And I remember wrestling through this. And finally, I just said, look, here's the deal. You want to see your generations raised up in faithfulness to the Lord? Well, I can't, I can't just give in to the status quo. And I think this is, for men especially, this is the part about what does it mean to be a hero? Well, first of all, not everyone is one. And so to act heroically and courageously and to be a man, you're going to have to do really hard things sometimes. And you're going to have to make sacrifices. And Joel, I guess the thing I don't get with a lot of men is they're like, well, yeah, but my business and my my this and my that. And I'm like, okay, well, what are your kids' souls worth to you? Right. What What about your wife? What What's the difference? What's the difference between a wife who is in a a, a community that she can flourish versus a community that she is continually crippled by anxiety and bitterness and not being fed by the word of God. Well, it's a big difference. And I mean, you look at the gospel commands. What did Jesus say? Like, it's almost cliche because we've heard it so many times, you you know, you come and follow me. And people are like, right. no, nah, I got a, I got a house. I got to attend it. Now nah, I got my, you know, my parents, I got the, th-. and I'm not saying businesses and houses and parents are a very real consideration, but I feel like in this moment, the stakes are so high that for me in my house, it was like, yeah, we're burning the boats. Right. Well, we may go down swinging. 
but we're going to give it our best effort. We're not going to sit on our hands and we're not going to watch our family just deteriorate spiritually and just say, well, hopefully against all my foolishness, God just makes it work out. Yeah, that's a great answer. That's super helpful. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think there's any way around it. I think that's the the honest answer. The honest answer is, um, yeah, you're probably going to have to move and it's going to be hard and it's going to require sacrifice. And at the end of the day, like what you're measuring, because, because you and I, like, we're not pietists, like we believe in business. We believe in, um, and, and all, you know, vocation and all those things matter. They matter immensely. Um, but what we're talking about right now is we're not talking about pietism. We're talking about, um, we're talking about economics and markets and vocation and all these things that mattered in land. Oh, maybe you own land in a certain place where like, and it's been in your family. You know what I mean? Like all we're talking yeah. about things that matter, but, and, and we're not the, the kind of guys theologically that, that would uh, cast shade and say those things don't matter. We're not um, poverty gospel, John Piper guys. <laughs> so we're saying we see the weight and the worth of that, but we're weighing it currently right now against the weight of your kids' souls the weight of your marriage, your wife, uh, whether she's going to stay with you or leave you because she's being lobotomized and, and indoctrinated by fem- like yeah. that. So, so we're, we're pro own, own land, own gun, uh, guns, own, uh, multiple properties over time, build wealth, multiple different, you know, a man who casts his bread seven times on the water, diversify, getting all these things, vocation, work hard, leave a legacy, a dynasty. Don't be like the Hobby Lobby guy and give it to charity. That's stupid. Don't hate your children. Give it to them. Don't have a bumper sticker that says I'm spending my children's inheritance. That's wicked. God hates that. Like, so we are not the, the old, uh, overtly spiritual pietistic, you know, um, just give to global missions. No, like we're saying all that matters. And, and we would give all that up for, for the soul. We're talking about the soul and, and not just our soul, but the souls of our children. And so if that's the situation you're in, then yeah, men do hard things. They, they start another business. They scrape by for a while. You know, uh, they, they hustle, they do, you do whatever it takes. And so I, I really appreciate that you gave that answer because I think that's the real answer. That's the honest answer. There is no, I keep trying to give people another answer, but I'm just like, that, I think that's, that's the answer. Some of these guys, a lot of these guys are literally, they're just going to have to move. They're going to have to move. Yeah. And a lot of them too, Joel, I'm sure you're aware a lot of these situations, I'll hear from the same guys over like three years and they just remain in the same condition. And um, yeah, it it is hard. There, for a lot of people, there's no easy answer. Um, but again, yeah, that priority of spiritual health of your family has to be at the top of the list. Amen. Well, this has been super helpful. I won't keep you any longer, but uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on the show. Tell our listeners one more time, you know, we kind of said it in the beginning, but one more time, what are some of the, the projects you're involved in, how they can be following you and how they can help support you and the Ogden Boys, your ministry? Yeah, absolutely. So I am the CEO of New Christendom Press. Um, That is my full-time venture these days. And we've got a a number of things under that banner, which include Bright Hearth podcast with Brian and Lexi Sauvey. We've got the Hard Men podcast. And then, of course, the King's Hall podcast. And uh, people can definitely follow along, support us on Patreon, on all those channels. And uh, we're kind of everywhere with that. But yeah, if you go to kingshall.com or New Christendom Press or ericcon.com, uh, you can find any one of us and and kind of follow along. Great. All right, Eric, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thanks, Joel. I appreciate it, brother. Can I be frank with you for just a second right here at the end? 
Look, some of you guys, you're financially supporting this ministry, and from the bottom of my heart, I say thank you. I cannot thank you enough. However, some of you, you just, you can't afford it. In fact, some of you, you shouldn't afford it. Let's be honest. I mean, we're living in Joe Biden's ridiculous economy. Our nation and our totalitarian political elites lost their minds over the last three years due to COVID. We have written checks that we simply cannot cash. It doesn't matter if people change the definition of a recession. We are living in a recession right now regardless. Some of you are struggling to afford a carton of eggs at the grocery store. You cannot support financially this ministry at this time, nor should you. But you could still help us tremendously. I am asking you, please, if you're willing to do so, Take one minute of your time. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, whatever that might be. This is the way the system works. We want to be innocent as doves, but shrewd as vipers. We need to be strategic. You leave us a five-star review, and our podcast shows up for more people. And the Word of God and courageous theology applied in practical ways to every realm of life gets out there. Help us get it out there. Thanks for tuning in.